Thank you for listening to this message from Rooted and Resolved. Take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to the book of Zechariah chapter 4. It's where we will be today. Looking at one of these visions from from the book of Zechariah. So if you have not been with us, we have been looking at a series called Your Kingdom Come. And this is what the this is what the book of Zechariah is about. It's about the coming kingdom. So to give you some context, Zechariah was a prophet who spoke to the nation of Israel following their exile in Babylon. They had um, they had been in captivity for 70 or 80 years, come home and they they returned to the to the land of Israel come to Jerusalem, they begin to rebuild the temple. They lay a foundation for that temple, and then they face some opposition, a few problems, and then they just stop the work. They just kind of get apathetic, complacent. It doesn't go forward. And Zechariah, God uses Zechariah and Haggai as a team together to be able to speak to the people and to get them to, to, to renew that work, to rebuild the house of God. And he, as he shares these visions, this is the fifth of eight visions that God would give Zechariah in one night, reminding him, look, I want to restore you. I want you to rebuild the temple. I want you to be back at work. But more than this temple that you're building, what we're doing here is, is something that's going to point to the coming kingdom of God. And so that's what the book of Zechariah is about. It's telling us all about how we can live in light of the coming kingdom of God. And what we've been trying to do are take some take some lessons. Uh, he, he shares a message for them. The, the vision that we're going to look at today, like all these other ones, there's a message for them specifically. But we, there's some things that we can look at for that for ourselves. We can apply it to our own lives and to see what God would have us to say, would say to us from these visions that he shared with Zechariah. The message today and the, the kind of the point of this vision is about the Holy Spirit as we have sang about this morning title of the message today would be by my spirit which would come from verse 6 of chapter 4 that we're going to read in just a little bit that we are to live if we are going to live in light of the king kingdom of God we must live in the power of the Holy Spirit um some of you guys uh okay well I want to do I want to do this raise your hand if you have never seen Toy Story It, oh, oh, Debbie. Okay, a few. All right. Any, anybody else never seen it? Okay. Uh, for the few people in the room, I'm going to give you a little. I'm going to break it down for you. Okay. You guys know. You guys have seen it, so you'll remember. It's about the toys in Andy's room, right? The story follows the toys in Andy's room, and when the when the movie opens up, um, Andy's having a birthday, and remember he gets a Buzz Lightyear toy for his birthday. And Buzz Lightyear, the spaceman, shows up into this room. And the problem is, is that Buzz Lightyear does not think that he's a toy. As the movie goes on, he thinks he's really a spaceman who has traveled the galaxy and defeated all kinds of people. He thinks he can fly. Um, you know, he feels like this shield is keeping him, it's allowing him to breathe. You know, he really has lasers that come out of his suit. You know, all of that. And Woody, the cowboy, is trying to convince him, hey man, you're not a spaceman, you're a toy. You know, but it keeps, it keeps kind of blowing up in Woody's face this whole time. If you've watched the movie, you remember 
that the psycho across the street, the, the neighbor kid, remembers, you remember, kidnaps, kidnaps him, you know. He's torturing the toys over there. And Woody sees a commercial for the, I mean, a Buzz sees the commercial for the Buzz Lightyear toy. And the commercial is constantly talking about Buzz Lightyear as a toy. And it dawns on him where he realizes, hey, wait a minute. These things, that, these powers that I thought I have, I don't have. These things that I thought I could do, I can't do. Sometimes in our Christian life, we kind of have an attitude like Buzz Lightyear. We forget who we are in Christ. We forget what we are as humans. We, we think that we have power to, to do what we want to. We forget that every beat of our heart, that every breath of our lungs, everything that we do is a gift from God. He has allowed that to happen. He is sustaining us. We have no power apart from him. And it is in him that we live and move and have our being, as Paul would say, right? We forget that. We think a lot of times that we do things on our own and that we are capable of, of so much in our Christian life. We think that our Christian growth is all up to us sometimes. We, we may think about our service to the Lord or things that we do in the church. We think about uh, when we try to do those things, we do it a lot of times in our own power rather than doing it in the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the thing. Any person in the room, when you think about what it means to live by the Spirit of God, when it comes to our salvation, we're not saved apart from the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. You don't just make a decision one day that you're going to be saved. It doesn't just dawn on you apart from the illumination of the Holy Spirit. And if you are trying to achieve salvation through good works, by doing good deeds, by attending church, by being a certain kind of person, it's only by his spirit that we are called to salvation. And then once we are saved, it is only by his spirit that we can serve, that we can live the command that he has called us to serve him, obey his commands, to live the Christian life. That's an impossibility for us apart from the moving power of the Holy Spirit within us. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to read Zechariah chapter 4. It's uh, 14 verses. I'm going to read all 14 verses, and if you have not been with us, this is what we have discovered. Sometimes reading the vision causes question marks, and we scratch our heads, right? So let's just read it with an open mind, trying to gain what the vision looks like. What did, what did Zechariah see? And then through the course of the message, we'll try to put some explanation to that and try to figure out how it applies to our life. In Zechariah chapter 4, reads this way. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me, like a man who is awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? And I said, I see, and behold, a lampstand, all of gold, with a bowl on top of it, and seven lamps on it, with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on the top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? And then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. And then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone and sh amid shouts of grace, grace to it. 
Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord which reigns through the whole earth. Then I said to him, What are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? And a second time I answered and said to him, What are these two branches of the olive trees which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? And he said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. He said, These are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. So I read this today, I thought about how annoyed I was being Zechariah. No, I don't know. Tell me, tell me. That's what I see like in this passage he's saying, right, the whole time. Let's talk about this vision. And let's talk about trying to understand what it looks like for us to allow the Holy Spirit to work in our life. For us to, 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 to work in the power of the Holy Spirit, to live in the power of the Holy Spirit, rather than to live in our own power. How does this apply to the people then? How does it apply to us today? Let's talk about it this way. Let's first say that by the Holy Spirit, the work is first envisioned. First of all, the work is envisioned. For Zechariah and for the people, he's giving them a vision of what could be with the temple. So what all the course of these visions are about is how they could be restored. But for us, kind of the focal point for us to kind of zero in on here is the Holy Spirit can open our eyes to see the situation as it is, but then also to see the situation as it could be, to be able to, to, for us to see how it could be in our life. That's part of what it means to live in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, this particular vision that Zachariah is seeing has several elements. And I want to take some time to explain those elements for us just to point out some things in Scripture so that we all have a clear understanding of what he is seeing. The first, I would say that probably the elements that I'm going to refer to are the lampstand, the bowl, and it talks about the oil and all that stuff, and then the two olive trees. Let's let those things be the elements that we talk about and try to get some some ideas about what they mean. So the first thing I think you should envision is this lampstand. When I talk about a lampstand, I'm talking about that Jewish menorah-looking lampstand that you see when you think about maybe like Hanukkah, you would think about with those seven lights on it that that extends up with those different branches, right? That that menorah, that lampstand was initially in the tabernacle and in the temple. It was shaped that way, and and it, it was a symbol within the tabernacle and the temple. It was the only light source within the temple. As the, as the priests were going about the business of burning incense, doing things within the temple, that lampstand was the only light source that was, that was giving light to that room, to that building. And the ultimate fulfillment of that lampstand, or the reason that I believe that God put that in the tabernacle or the temple or directed them to do that, is ultimately that lampstand was a picture of Jesus. Because Jesus alone is the light of the world, right? There's, there was one light within the temple. There wasn't multiple, there was one, and that was him, right? That's ultimately what I think the picture is. But as you continue through Scripture, what you begin to discover is the lampstand or the light is symbolic of more than just Jesus. It is symbolic of those who, by their association with Jesus, are to be a light in the darkness, 
When you think about Israel, for instance, the nation of Israel, which is, I believe, what is being depicted in this particular vision, Jesus would have said that he was the light of the world, but by our association with him, we're able to shine that light. And in, in Zechariah, I'm, I'm sorry, in Isaiah 62 in verse 1, he, you get a verse where you can kind of see where the lampstand would represent the nation of Israel. He writes, For Zion's sake I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation is a burning torch. It was God's intention that by his association with his people, that his people, the nation of Israel, would be a light to the nations, that they would be a beacon of light in a dark world, and they would point others to the living God, that other nations would see them and would point, point those other nations to the living God. Now, we know that they, they failed in this ultimately, right? That's why part of the reason why they were taken into captivity. They chased after idols. They were not a good representation of that, which Jesus comes and is the ultimate light of the world, right? But even when Jesus is here, in that Sermon on the Mount, he says a word that I think extends to me and you because you and I as the church today are to be the light in the world. In Matthew chapter 5, in that Sermon on the Mount text, in, starting in verse 14, Jesus said, you are the light of the world. Now stop right there. Remember, there's no light in us. The only reason that we are the light of the world is by our association with him. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We have no light in and of ourselves, so we must rely on the power of the Holy Spirit to shine out from us in order that others might see us. In this vision that Zechariah is getting, that lampstand that stands in the middle represents the nation of Israel that's to be a light to the nations. And in this particular vision, it's shining. It's, it's, it's lit up and it's bright. It's giving off light. Probably the, the second element that we need to examine, which is kind of difficult to envision as I've tried to envision it this week, is basically like a bowl and a pipe system. A bowl that would be over that lamp holding the oil that would be feeding into all of those seven different lights that are on it. It's feeding into all of those. It's giving oil to the lamp. The, the, the menorah, the, the lampstand that was in the tabernacle or temple, it was the priest's responsibility to keep that lit all the time. So in the morning... And in the evening, the priests would trim the wicks and would refill the oil so that the lampstand in the temple was always lit, giving light to the house of God. In this particular menorah, or this lampstand that Zechariah is seeing, there's no priest refilling it. What's being envisioned is this bowl system that has, it's, the way I see it is like a bowl with seven different pipes going to each one of those seven different uh, lamps that are on it. Verse 2 kind of describes that, right? There's a bowl on top of it, seven lamps on that lampstand, seven lips on each of the lamps to feed them. And, and so there's, there's, there's this oil that's coming out with seven. You see seven so many times in that. And in Scripture, seven is a number that, that means completeness. So what you're seeing here is, is you're seeing that this, is com this lamp is completely lit. It has all the oil it needs. It has an unlimited supply. It's, it's not going to run out 
It's a light to those around him. The nation of Israel, in this vision, God is showing them that the Holy Spirit would be for them, for us, an unlimited supply of oil. Oil in Scripture is typically representative of the Holy Spirit. It is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. A place where you might see this would be um, a place where you would hear maybe people talk about anointing people with oil. So a king might be anointed with oil in the, in the Old Testament, say. And they would take that oil and they would pour it over his head and it would drip down like this right here. And, and that's not just a, an empty religious ceremony or something weird that people did. It was symbolic of the idea that the Spirit of God was resting on that person, was covering that person, that kind of idea, Right? Also think about it, you'll see in the New Testament, the talk about anointing the sick with oil. And and yeah, oil was used for medicinal purposes and all that stuff as well. But when you think about the Holy Spirit of God resting on that person, that's kind of the idea that's being described. When When you hear in Scripture about someone being anointed with oil, that's not a weird thing that somebody's doing. If nothing else, just think about it as symbolically saying that the Holy Spirit is resting on that person. And so... What's being described here is a lampstand that's being fed constantly by oil. A life that is to be a light to the world that is being constantly fed by the Holy Spirit to give out that light to the nations. The other final element that you find in this vision are the trees that are on each side. There are two trees. And as Zechariah continues to ask in the last few verses of this text, it seems like it's hard to get an answer from the angel about what these two trees represent. And then when the angel does give an answer in verse 14, it's a very vague one. These are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord. Now, I'm going to tell you what other people have said, and then I'm going to tell you what I think, and you can do whatever you want to with it, okay? Because based on the angel's answer, we still don't know who these two trees are, right? One common answer is that these two trees represent Joshua and Zerubbabel. If you have not been with us, Joshua, we talked about a lot last week. Joshua, at the time of this vision, was the high priest, and Joshua would have represented the people symbolically, uh, spiritually. He would have been a kind of a symbol of them spiritually. Zerubbabel, who's mentioned numerous times in the chapter that we read today, would have been the governor at that time, and so he would have represented the people in a civic way. And so you've kind of, you've got this spiritual religious side, you've got this civic governmental side. And so most commentators that I read this week would say that these two trees represent Joshua and Zerubbabel, and these branches are pipes that are giving oil to the bowl, which is giving then to the lamp, is that God would use these two men to be able to, to, to produce the work and to see the temple rebuilt. Few commentators I read said that um, it's neither, it's neither of those men, that these two Um, anointed ones are two angelic messengers, two angelic beings that God would use to provide uh, oil, to provide the Holy Spirit, to empower the people to work. I don't know, but what I don't feel like these two trees are representative of Haggai and Zechariah, like these two prophets who have this mission of rebuilding the temple and, and God is using them to, is working through the Holy Spirit in order to encourage the people to get to work and to rebuild. I don't know that there's a right or a wrong. I kind of like that last explanation, but it doesn't really matter as to who they represent. What's being described, the vision that we get from this, is a picture of, of a light, a life that is shining into the darkness, being fed and filled with the Holy Spirit 
and being encouraged by the work of others. Think for just a moment about your own life because the truth is, is, is I don't know that where you stand today, but I believe that it could be that, that that's, I think, I think that vision is what God wants every believer to be. I believe God wants every believer to be a light shining in this dark world, being empowered and filled with his Holy Spirit. I think he wants us to be used of him and to encourage others to work in the power of the Holy Spirit. The question that I would have for you this morning is, is that your life? And maybe if you're here this morning and it's not your life, this is what I believe the Holy Spirit can do. I believe the Holy Spirit can take a vision given to a guy several thousand years ago, and you can read that vision, and then the Holy Spirit can let you recognize today that you're not right with him. Because the Holy Spirit shows us the situation as it is. But hear me, the Holy Spirit also helps us envision how our life could be. And it could be that you're here this morning and you are not a light to the nations, saved or not. You are not a lampstand filled with the Holy Spirit and shining that light into the world. But what he's shown you today is you could be. He's shown you that your life could be different than what it is today. And that he would use this service, he would use this time to move you to him, to point you to him. The Holy Spirit helps us envision the work. Second thing that happens is that the, whole, the Holy Spirit... Um, it empowers the work. By his power, the work is em, uh, empowered. It's given strength. Without the Holy Spirit empowering our lives, it's impossible for us to live lives that are pleasing to God, right? If you think for just a moment about this, God was asking um, them to do something that was impossible. Basically, when they looked at this task, they saw something that was insurmountable. We cannot do this. But when you look to Scripture, it's not unusual for God to ask people to do things that are impossible, right? This morning in Sunday school, um, I had the um, I had the the, um, the fourth and fifth graders that kind of class, and we talked a little bit about Acts one eight, and in that verse, God told those people that you will remain in Jerusalem. And you will receive power when my Holy Spirit has come upon you. And then, after you receive the power of the Holy Spirit, you will be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. He was asking them, 100, 120 people, to share the message of the gospel to the entire world. That sounds like a hard task. But he prefaced it by saying, but I'm going to empower you with my spirit to get it done. As a believer in Jesus Christ, he has called us when our, in our Christian lives to be holy as he is holy. Is that possible? Not apart from him, it's not, right? It's an impossible task for us to be holy as he is holy. But empowered by his Holy Spirit, that is possible, right? That's possible for us to show the holiness of the Lord in our life, to live godly lives. What God was asking them to do in their minds, this was an impossible thing. And so look for just a moment at this text to see the impossibility of it in their minds and look at what God was going to do from it. The first place I would point you to is verse number 7. Verse number 7, when you read it, this is just what it says. He's just told them in verse number 6 that it's not by might, it's not by power that this temple is going to be rebuilt, but it will be by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Then look at the next verse. It seems strange. Who are you, O great mountain? What's this got to do with anything? When the people looked at this job, do you know what they saw? It's a mountain we can't get over. How in the world are we going to build this thing? How, how are we going to do that? 
In their minds, the original temple was built by Solomon. And so when they look at this temple and they think about, well, Solomon had, had all kind of resources. How are we going to move this mountain? But what he was telling them is, in the power of the Holy Spirit, you can look to this mountain. I'm not talking about naming and claiming stuff right here, okay? But you can look to this mountain and you say, mountain, hey, you're not as big as you once looked. With the power of the Holy Spirit, you, you look like something that I can tackle. Not because I'm strong enough to tackle you, but because he's big enough to tackle you. You can look to this mountain and the mountain is leveled. It becomes smaller. That's why in verse 7 he says, Oh great mountain, who, who are you? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain. This thing that seems insurmountable, this thing that seems like we can't get over it, it'll be straight as an arrow. You'll be able to walk across it. Christ-centered commentary says, If you listen carefully, you may hear the mountain reply, I'm a great mountain, what are you? Standing on our own, we would never have an answer for the mountains we face. But standing in the power of God's Holy Spirit, when the mountain says, I'm a mountain, what are you? We can say, I'm a child of God, living in the power of God's Spirit. The blood of Jesus has redeemed me. His Spirit lives inside me. Mountain, you will become level ground in front of me. Praise the Lord. Not only are mountains leveled, but look with me to verse 10. I believe that small things become significant in the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. In verse 10, it says, Whoever despised, whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice. The Jews looked at this foundation of this temple, and it was, it was sad. The temple that they had originally remembered, the one that Solomon built, was very extravagant. Solomon built that temple when he had great armies and when he had great resources. And they looked at the project in front of them and they said, we don't have all that. Our temple's not going to be as good. Why do it? Also, they had stopped working on it 16, 17 years ago. Now, I just want you to imagine what this foundation looks like. Bud, Tubbs, it's so crazy that you're here. The Tubbs used to live, oh, when they lived over there in that house, there was a house right across the road from them, I believe, because I was thinking about this house this week, and then I didn't know they were going to be here this morning. There was a house right across the street from them, and the work was not, the, the, the house like quit. It was just a foundation, and then they just quit working on it. And weeds were grown up, and, and, every, and if you looked at that, you, you, when, it was first, when they first stopped working on it, you would say, oh, there's a promise of a new house here. But after a few years, when the weeds grow up around it, it kind of becomes discouraging. It's like a testimony to unfulfilled dreams. That's what the foundation was for them. And now this, this thing that seemingly is insignificant in their eyes, I believe God is making it significant. On, the, on that day, on that day, those of you that have despised small things, you will rejoice because it is like God to take insignificant things and make them significant, like David with a giant, like five loaves and two fishes, that sort of idea, that God can take a thing and make it significant. Let's look at the last bit of this. By his power, the work is envisioned and it's empowered, but finally the work is executed. Go with me to, um, to verse 9 and verse 7, because in these verses, there are promises here that the temple will be finished. You see, I believe that God doesn't just provide a vision of what's to be and then give us the power to do it. I believe that God actually pulls it off. He actually gets it done. 
And that's what he says is going to happen here. He's encouraging them with this promise. This thing that seems insurmountable to you, by my power, it will be completed. Look at verse 9 where he tells him this. He says, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. Zerubbabel was involved in that initial foundation building when they first returned. And he says here, his hands shall also complete it. And then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. God is assuring Zerubbabel that the work will get done. You see it again in verse 7 where it says, He shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Think about the capstone or what they're going to, it's the last puzzle piece. Zerubbabel has in his hand the last piece of the puzzle in rebuilding the temple, and he's bringing it forward to put it into place, and the people are cheering and shouting, grace, grace to this. God bless this work. He's he's giving him a vision of what could be, and he's saying this is going to be, uh, this is going to be a completed project. This is not going to stay uncompleted and an unfulfilled dream forever. He's giving them the encouragement to get it done. See, the truth is, is that you and I, if our salvation was left up to us, we would very quickly fall away. But you see, you are being sustained. You weren't just saved then. You are, you are being saved every day by the power of his Holy Spirit. He is sustaining you and preserving you until that day. Philippians 1 in verse 6, Paul writes and says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. God is promising that he's going to sustain that work and get it done, get it finished. And it's important to know that he's doing that. When it comes to our own lives and you think about where you are today with him, maybe you're not a bright light where you are. Maybe you are not filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, but maybe he would give you a vision that you could be that. See, the problem with us is is that we feel like that if it's not happening... If it's not happening right now, that we have to drum that up. We have to drum up the power of the Holy Spirit in a, in a service or in our own life. But that's not for me and you. Our, our job is not, to, is not to work up excitement that the Holy Spirit might move. Our job is to be surrendered to him so that he can break us, melt us, mold us, all of those things. It's the excitement that follows that. The, work in a Holy, the Holy Spirit's work in a person's life is not excitement and jumping pews and shouting and you know, leapfrogging into the baptistry or whatever, right? That's not the power of the Holy Spirit necessarily. The power of the Holy Spirit is that breaking, that molding that leads to an excitement and a joy that follows. It's not up for us to conjure that up. It's up to us to surrender to him that he might do it in our life. Vance Havner, I love Vance Havner, very funny, but I love this. This quote is dated, like you'll know when I'm reading it, but you'll get the idea. We say we depend on the Holy Spirit, but actually we are so wired up with our own devices that if the fire does not fall from heaven, we can turn on a switch and produce false fire of our own. If there's no sound of a rushing mighty wind, we have the furnace to set to blow hot air instead. Listen to his words. God save us from a synthetic Pentecost. It would be very easy for us where we are to try to work in the Holy Spirit, to try to leave here and try to serve, to try to do missions 
in our community with people that we don't know, to share the gospel with people like we talked about in Sunday school, to come up here and sing on this platform, or, or to teach a Sunday school class, or to whatever we're doing. It would be very easy to do those things in our own spirit and create for ourselves a synthetic Pentecost. Create for ourselves that I don't really need the Holy Spirit. I, I, I can do this. I've got this covered. Forgetting the whole time who we actually are. You see, our greatest need is not for strength. Our greatest need is to realize our weakness and then let the Holy Spirit work in us. If you're here today and you don't know him, God's not asking you to get strong enough or to get clean enough to come to him. God's saying, recognize your weakness and then just surrender it all to me. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you would like to find more resources to help you grow in your walk with Christ, check out our website at rootedandresolved.org.